0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform.
1: I want to talk about something. I spend a lot of time on iTunes looking at our podcast. Please review it. Please check us out on Stitcher. Check us out on Instacast. Uh, We love all the people who have been uh, writing reviews, sending us emails. Uh, What is the email for this podcast? Max at longform.org you we want to say something about the podcast, just send it to org. He'll let the two of us know. Um, we really appreciate the support and um, subscribe. First ever PSA for the Long Form Podcast. Yeah. Uh, Safety first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who did we? Who do we have on this week? Jean-Marie Laskis of GQ uh, and the author oh, of uh, a new book called Hidden America, which I, uh, even if... The University of Pittsburgh, where Jean-Marie Laskas is the head of the writing department, even if they were not a sponsor of Longform, I would still recommend. Yeah. Uh, Max Linsky and uh, Jean-Marie Laskas. I feel like we owe it to people who are listening to just quickly convey where we are, which is... Oh, please. ...on the... 48th floor of a hotel in midtown manhattan which is by far the quietest place we've ever recorded this podcast
2: but that's not even the best part of it is it
1: <coughs> it's really not the best part no uh, the best part is that we are sitting on opposite ends of an ironing board
2: a, a silver one
1: yeah it's a it's a very nice ironing board.
2: prop to the perfect height in the middle of this room
1: well only prop to the perfect height because i'm using pillows as a booster seat
2: which is it's it's just so beautiful
1: <laughs> it really is so now that everyone is here um, why are you here? Why are you in New York?
2: I'm here to have a little bit book party last night for this book I've got just out called Hidden America. And to do a lot of, uh, talks about that project, which as you know, and we have to tell the listeners, um, it was about a six year project. So it's finally, finally out.
1: Congratulations. Yeah. So why don't you, why don't you give people who aren't familiar with it just a quick sort of, uh. Synopsis sure, it's book.
2: a hidden America. Is, a, is It's a collection, really, of chapters um, that are that are related, but um, also can stand alone as standalone pieces um, about the people who make this country work. Um, who are the people? Who are the coal miners? Who are the the guys on the oil rigs up in Alaska? Who are the migrant workers? Who are these people doing the daily labor um, who make our lives actually quite livable? and they're invisible to us. And so I spent time going around the country just immersing myself in these cultures and, and getting to know these people.
1: Were, was that a kind of story that you had been doing for a long time before these chapters that are in the book? Were those sorts of stories ones that you've been trying to tell for a long time? Or was there something that changed where all of a sudden you said, oh, maybe I'm not as interested in doing, you know, celebrity profiles or or whatever other kind of work you've been doing and so said, I'm going to go kind of off the map That's a such bit. a good
2: question. You know, it's the, if if I look back, it's how I started, you know, sort of right out of grad school. I remember um, the, that was in Pittsburgh and just almost instinctively just what was interesting to me was, you know, they have these barges that go up and down the rivers in Pittsburgh and I thought, oh who are in those barges? What are, what's up with that? No one ever talked about them. They go back and forth and back and forth. And who are they? You know? And I just like, that's one of the first stories I ever did. I just hopped on one of the barges and lived on it for two weeks at two week hitch and just like fell in love with that kind of, that kind of reporting and those people. So I I did that early on. Mm -hmm. And then as you, you know, wind your way through magazine land, you take in all, take on all kinds of things. And I did a, bunch of memoir stuff because mm-hmm. i had a column in the washington post magazine
1: I, well i want to talk to you about that for just a second because this is one of the uh i should we should also disclose that long form and oh. the university of pittsburgh uh where you run the writing department uh have a relationship
2: we're, we're sort of married aren't yeah
1: we? we're a little married we're we are uh we are like on the way to marriage i think we, we are, like moved in together yeah uh, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're living together yeah we're li- and, it's, and it's going great it is it's cohabitation's a, been awesome so far.
2: We love long form. <laughs> we do, well, and we believe in it. We want to support it. I mean, we want to be part of it. You know,
1: it's been um, it has been awesome, awesome having you guys as sponsors. And um, but the thing I wanted to ask you about was when I first came to Pitt and I first met you, we talked about that column that you had for the Post, uh-huh. and which you wrote for how many years? Fourteen years. Fourteen years. We every
2: stinking week. Yeah. <laughs> no, I loved it, but you know. After 14 years it was every stinking week.
1: But here's the crazy thing about that column. Uh-huh. It ran in the post and you wrote it from Pittsburgh.
2: Yeah, I know that weird.
1: And everyone who read it thought you lived in Washington.
2: Yeah, and it's not like I lied. I just never said where I lived. And I, I just never mentioned it. But you assume, I suppose. Because it was, it was you know, the post magazine it was especially then it was really kind of a local right. And you and maker. your
1: column was really personal.
2: Very personal i never i didn't pretend I lived in Washington. I never said, "Oh, I'm on the metro right you know, I never used any of this sort of landmarks of Washington. I lived on a farm i do I live on a farm, and so I was writing it from this rural place you know mm-hmm. where where stuff happened <laughs> and um and it was just that it was just that it was like the daily kind of like just picking something that happened that week that touched me was either really funny or really scary, or really sad. I would always go for the emotion and build a narrative around it. And each one was a little narrative.
1: Did you, uh, was it the kind of thing where you had to, like it was the end of the week right before your deadline where you were, you were plumbing the depths of what had happened to you that week? No,
2: it, it was, that was what was hard about it. It was it lived with me every single day, all day. Um, you know, writing it in my head. You know, what's What's the moment this week? What's the moment that really puts this week for me, you know, what what's the moment that, what happened this week that that says something about all of our lives? That was the thing. It was like, who the hell cares what happens to this woman in a farm in rural Pennsylvania? Nobody. So it had to well, matter. Especially
1: because the people in Washington didn't, didn't know that your farm was in rural Pennsylvania. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of what's so amazing to me about that column is that it had to hit so consistently on sort of universal human themes because you were writing for a local newspaper and couldn't write about local things.
2: Right, so it was, but it was, you know, love, sorrow, um, you know, things that, longing, um, ridiculous, absurd notions of the way we live our lives, you know. Something as small as being on an elevator and having someone come on the elevator and stand the wrong way and like face everybody.
1: That's the wrong way to face everybody? Well, you know,
2: like everybody faces out. And it's an anonymous experience. When you get in an elevator, you, you walk in an elevator. Everyone's looking at the door. Everybody looks at the door. You yeah. just do. It's a sort of, and no one, that's just like the etiquette of elevators, apparently. I mean, no one even speaks of it, right? Yeah. But having someone get on and face everybody and just stand there for the length of time, you know, and that, and just like, I would just like freeze a moment like that. Like, okay, whoa, who are we? You mm-hmm. know, it, it just take a moment to ponder it could be that it could be that tiny it could be as huge as going to china to adopt a, my baby you know i mean really it was everything from from one to
1: it was just a it was just your life every week
2: yeah and I, and it was honestly like the best gig for a writer to practice a craft and to um you know practice narrative is really what it was it was you know telling a story tight in 900 words telling an entire story that did something, that traveled, that traveled from point A to point somewhere. You know, that wasn't just for the sake of the joke, or wasn't just for the sake of shock, or to gossip. You know, but I had to travel somewhere every single week. And that, it was just such good training. It was almost like working out. yeah, You know, and then almost, it, you carry that with your writing. But, to get back to our original point, I got so sick of myself. I was so sick of writing about myself um, that after that column ended, one of the reasons I ended it was like, okay, I have to go talk to other people. I just like – I have to go write about get, other people. You had to get out of your own head a little I bit. I really did. And and that's when Hidden America really kicked in. And it was – as I look back, it was like kind of going back to my roots of um, like that barge story and those stories I did when I was really young.
1: Well, I mean another hallmark of these stories that are in the book is that uh – uh. They sort of require you to be as invisible as possible.
2: You know, someone has pointed that out recently, and I—I lo- I, I never really realized that, but it does. I mean, you're there, but you're not there. You're really there as a an observer, but still, it's filtered through your eyes. But like, I don't ever make myself a character in the story. Right. Very rarely, I might—I might just be have someone bounce off of my, my presence is like in the way. Right. So sometimes that has to interfere, but honestly have it interfere instead of pretending.
1: Well, it seems like, you know, the, you just had a story that's also a version of it is also in the book about going and working at a gun shop in Yuma, Arizona. Yuma, Arizona. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, maybe just give us a second sort of synopsis of that story.
2: Sure. Um, that was a story that was, you know, who are the people who are selling our guns who are these clerks working in gun stores it came off of the um the tucson shooting um uh, horrible media cup cov- not horrible media coverage horrible massacre um and there was this little fact that always stuck with me that that killer had st- on his way to shoot all those people had stopped at a walmart to get his bullets and the walmart clerk said no to him you can't have these bullets and i was like well why? How, what did that person see? Who is this person? And you mean to tell me that this is in the the clerks at Walmart, or who are keeping us away from you know are the killers getting armed? You know, it was like so. I really was interested in that transaction at the at the counter at the moment with guns, with ammunition, with everything. And Arizona is like the gun laws are, you know, just like free as free as they are anywhere. So I worked behind the counter with these gun clerks.
1: I somehow Walmart wouldn't let you go work behind the counter at a Walmart?
2: They would not let me and they would not reveal the identity of this person. It was hush, 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 hush. How
1: long how long did you spend trying to figure out who that person was before you decided oh, to move on to a gun shop?
2: Oh oh probably a couple months with a researcher too. I mean yeah. we all worked. But it, it it got to their legal department. I mean I I don't know why I was like, why wouldn't you this person's heroic? Why wouldn't you let me talk to this person?
1: Well didn't he just go didn't the didn't the kid just go to another Walmart?
2: Yeah. Yeah, he did. He ended up. Yeah, that's it. Because right. what happened next was, yeah, another Walmart where he bought all the ammunition he could want.
1: First one was a hero, and the second one is responsible somehow or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I'm, but you know he's ringing up boxes of Tide or right. something. Right. You know, it's <laughs> right. Like, I mean,
1: right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just saying it's not surprising that Walmart. Yeah, of let course, you do. right. Yeah.
2: But then it was like, uh, I don't know, in in Arizona the gun the gun culture and these gun stores are so
1: huge right I mean the one the place that you went and worked is like a mega store
2: yeah it was like a it was a it wasn't a big box store but it was a big you know it wasn't a chain Sprague Sports beautiful store I'm like a beautiful sporting goods store except for all the merchandise was either guns or knives or um you know weapons and and and, uh the men that there were all there were some women there too they were the nicest people most welcoming people And they all dressed nice, you know, and they had their little polo shirts with their names on it. It was like being at a lovely shoe store. (laughs) It really was. And so it was hard to be, it was hard to go in there and say, Ew, I disagree with you. You know, I mean, who cares?
1: But your, I mean, your plan from the start wasn't to walk in there and say, Ew, I disagree with you. What what brought you there? What were you trying to figure out?
2: Initially, I was trying to figure out, you know, I really did want to get at these moments of the transaction. What do people ask for when they come to buy a gun? What do they say? Do they say, yeah, I need this assault rifle because, you know, I'm getting kind of angry in my life. I mean, you know, I don't know. What do they say? What does the clerk say? What's that transaction? That was my my immediate just to get on the front line of that kind of thing. But but eventually it became trying to understand because I come from a different culture, you know. Um, I come from a culture that doesn't get guns at all. Where, you know, they think they're they're scary and – and bad and they kill people that's it that's our conversation over and over again and these people have this other sort of whole conversation going on i didn't want to write a gun control story and i didn't i wanted to under try and like can you make the leap over into that that consciousness can you understand from their point of view and i eventually did that was weird like, there was a moment where they kept they kept talking about these crazy liberals back east who are so stupid and so scary. So stupid because they don't arm themselves and so scary because they're, you know, they just don't understand. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, we call you stupid and scary. <laughs> this is amazing. Like, how can we both be so stupid and scary? So it was really that. It was like two, these two Americas. Like, wow, there is no crossing that. And when I got home with my guns that I bought, I mean, my friends were like, what in the hell happened to you?
1: So stupid. <laughs> You're so,
2: yeah, and so scary. Right, right, <laughs>
1: right. I mean, did you, a lot of those columns got tied up in a nice bow, but that, that guns piece kind of ends, like, how are we going to cross that divide? How are we going to bridge that gap?
2: I, I really, I feel like the end of that story and that chapter is this this, this surrender where I, I think it's imp- – I honestly thought it – I don't think I say it this way, but it it was impossible to live in – to to have both brains going at the same time. These two Americas, there's – they don't understand us and we don't understand them. Of course, it translates to, to the political stage. It just keeps translating, translating, translating.
1: Well, that – I mean, that brings up another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is it, um, the book and the stories in the book, and, and I think you're writing generally – is, um, it's sort of like defiantly apolitical. I mean, that seems seems to me mm. at least that, I mean I've, I've heard you talk about that before, that you don't wanna bring your own politics to these topics and you don't want, you wanna get at the people mm. who are behind the issues and not just talk about the issues, or not really talk about the issues at all. Um, is it hard to do that? I mean, going out on an oil rig, mm. You know the idea that we don't know how that oil gets from Alaska to our car or to our mm-hmm. running shoes or wherever else it ends up mm. makes sense to me. But that's an issue that I feel like people are really well versed in. Um, so I guess I, I'm I'm wondering how how hard you have to work to keep the politics out of what you're doing.
2: Well, I guess it, the way you're asking that question is really interesting because that assumes that the politics is in it for the people I'm talking to, I will tell you, it depends on the people who I'm talking to. If I was up in that oil rig and all the conversation was about either the environmental issues or, um, you know, any any issues around drilling and the, the you know, the, the national conversation, that would be the conversation I would be involved in. But in fact, up there... That is not the conversation when you're living on this, you know, in this ice in the pitch dark and you have to basically save your life every single day as you're at work. There is just no, in these circumstances, no connection to another conversation. None. So so it would be false, I feel, if what I'm trying to do as a writer to, to kind of almost like write a play with these characters to then impose some thinking that the audience brings in hmm to me that's it that 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 falsifies my my story you know so I don't I just don't bring it in but if they brought it in the people the characters if it was part of their daily I, it would be there same like for example that gun story I kept saying I'm not here to write a gun control story and they could not stop kind of convincing me about the second my second amendment rights they couldn't stop so i you know that becomes part of it but coal miners don't really talk about you know coal miners it's just like what do they talk they talk about strippers of course <laughs> they do you know so we're going to talk about strippers so it's like that more
1: um let's talk about that coal mining story cuz i feel like that's uh that's what leads off the book and um it's really it's a it's an incredible but can you walk us through that a little sure.
2: bit um it opens up where I'm in a coal mine 500 <laughs> 500 feet um below beneath Ohio talking to a coal miner named foot his name is foot because he has size 15 feet um and I'm just sort of under there and he's giving me a potato chip and I'm just talking to him about what the hell he's doing here <laughs> um and I I was I was about six months in and out of that coal mine Um, Getting to know that that cast of characters, and living and and that also that culture of a mining town.
1: Like, uh, how much time did you actually spend in the mine over those six months? I mean, were you there every day?
2: Oh no, not every day. But I I lived about an hour and a half from it, so I could come and go um, several times a week, certainly. And I wanted they do ten hour shifts, and you kind of can't get out once you're in there. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have to kind of commit. you go with the shift so so as often as I could and that was the weird thing you know I thought maybe I'd go once because I know I I, you know it's terrifying or or at least your image of it is if you survive one time down there whoo you got it write the story right you know I was like hoping I could do one shift I was just hoping and then I wanted to do another one and then I went to do another one and honestly six months later like my husband is saying okay you got to be done this research please honestly you going back to the
1: skull mine? What what were you looking for? I mean, what 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 did you keep wanting to go back to find?
2: I I I'm sure I found whatever I needed long before I left. You know, I, I but what I found there that kept me there. Well, there's like this guy Scotty. He said, "Yeah, it sticks to you a little bit, doesn't it?" And I think the same thing for those guys. It's like as awful as it is. It's like going into combat or something. Um, They were going to keep going. It's it's a nameless connection to a place and to each other that is so not romanticized, you know, in their language. You know, it's not like, yeah, we we just love. We're really attached to the earth. (laughs) We're really attached to. I'm attached to my grandpap down here. None of that.
1: There's not a lot of coal miner poetry.
2: There is in the world, and there's coal miner songs, and I get why. I mean, but not among them in the daily oh my gosh no they you know they're mean to each other but they love each other but they're cursing at each other you know making fun of each other and they all knew so much about each other's lives out uh, out in the you know they were connected Scotty was a boxer they they who just wanted to win this big belt you know in Wheeling and would talk on and on and on about his next fight his next fight and they were teasing him mercilessly about being how he was going to get killed and and was like mean but then don't you know the night of the fight every single one of them was there cheering him on and it was just like that's our scotty that's our scotty a lot of that
1: and after six months i mean uh do you become part of the group what's your role in a group like that
2: you're always a visitor and you have to remember that i think because as much as you can sort of i mean that's a long time to spend in a community um but I could love a coal mine because I could finally just leave and not have to go back. I can't understand really ultimately their connection to that mine because they, in a way, are stuck. I mean, they've chosen this life and that's the way they're feeding their families. That's the way they're keeping their mortgage payments. Um, so their connection, so ultimately I always, do know I'm just a visitor as much as I can pretend. But I think if you're, anybody writing these kind of stories, I think if you're aware of that and you don't pretend, like, okay, I got this, there has to be always some sort of speculation left outside the story, like you're just a visitor.
1: But what does pretending look like? I mean, you know, what do you do? How how close do you get to these guys?
2: Oh, very, I feel. I mean, to the point where I'm i I'm comfortable enough to go home with them and stay overnight in their houses and wake up and have breakfast with their wives and play with their kids in the backyard. Um the one character in there, his name is Pap, the old guy. His mother was dying. Oh, I went to her I went to her bedside so many times with him. Um the first time thinking it would be like this just like really like ooh, a dying woman. Um that'll be intense scene you know the way you think but in fact it was just so much a part of this guy's life visiting his mom who didn't speak a word of english just polish and listening to him them babbling to each other in this language i didn't understand and um he just he was really old himself and she was bedridden skinny couldn't even sit up but he loved her so much and just sitting in the presence of that long enough you you're not exactly part of the family but you're accepted as if you were
1: And, you know, aside from your husband telling you, Jean-Marie, you really got to stop going down on that mine. how do you know when to move on? I mean, if you're not looking for scenes, you know, if you're not sort of like surgically looking for what you need to tell a story, but instead are sort of putting yourself in a position to just have the story unfold in front of you, how do you know when it's done? How do you know when you're done?
2: Well, I have to say that, you don't really know. You just eventually. I think this is a trap for a lot of people, a lot of writers. Because, you know, the writing is so awful and so hard. And you know you're going into, like, Hellsville. And you're all, like, I over-research often, I think, as a way of avoiding writing. You know, you do anything but write. I'm one of these people who I love having written, but it is so hard.
1: You should know that I talked to your editor at GQ last night. And asked him for like what you know what would he want what would he ask you, knowing I was going to interview you today? And he was like, "How does she write so painlessly?" Painlessly? That was that was the read was, wow. uh, Jean Marie Laskas, the the pages just show up in your inbox, and it seems like they uh, they came out effortlessly. Okay,
2: I revise a lot, and I'm so embarrassed to show anything until. I feel like it's as far as I can take it. I'm so, a lot of people can show a draft to an editor and work through a draft. I just am so sh- embarrassed that it's so terrible. I can't, I can't show them. So I get it like I revise, 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 revise. I do. And I don't think I'm verbal in complaining. Was that Andy Ward? Yeah. So Andy Ward is, was the editor on a lot of these stories. And that was the other thing I was going to say was like, how do you know you're done? I don't even know when I'm out there that I have anything. The only way I know, like in the coal miner story, I come up from this coal mine, I always call Andy. It's not an editor, it's a writing partner, that's the way I really look at it. I always call Andy, as soon as I come up, I'm like, oh man, I don't have anything. This is going to be so boring to everyone. And he's like, well, like, tell me what's going on. And I was like, well, like, you know, I just came up from the mine, I'm going over to Pap's house to visit his mom, and I'll start telling these stories, and he'll like be like, holy shit. And I'm like, really, this is interesting? like oh I mean you know and just his reaction and I was like oh okay so we're getting something yeah just keep going just keep going
1: so you guys so you're checking in daily with someone when you're working on this stuff because you're sort of so you have so little other context those
2: conversations are gold I don't know if I could do it without those conversations frankly I really don't because it grounds you and it's you step you get I think because you get so in if you're there really there immersing yourself in the experience maybe that's a test of the fact that you're you're really immersed you can't even step outside of it to say wow there's something to write about here i don't think about what i'm going to write about
1: you don't you don't go home and have you know like your your lead in your head oh god
2: never really i don't all the research is done and i have tapes upon tapes upon tapes notebooks i have no idea what i'm going to write about honestly i really don't i'll say well I hope Foot's a character. I hope. I, I hope I can write about Scotty's fight. That was something I want to write about, but I have no idea where it's going to. No idea why I'm even writing it now. I'm much more like, and from an inside out writer, I just start writing scenes.
1: So you've you've got this collection of stories where you've gone and uh, and spent a lot of time with folks who uh, most of us don't really think about are you going to keep doing that is that is that are those the stories that you want to keep telling do you run into the same situation that you did with your column where maybe you need to find something else to do are there an endless amount of invisible jobs for you to go sort of explore
2: well let me just say first of all i you st i keep stumbling into them it's almost like once you start this once you start thinking like this you know it's like what else touches my life every day it's like you can't stop corn, cotton, water, textile industry, not the whole medical world I haven't touched, emergency room stuff, um, more natural resources, it's endless. But I mean, in this case, I was sort of directed around this idea of putting these together as a book. So I focused kind of almost on a point of view Um, what else what else but I don't really think that way just generally about what I'm gonna write about you know in this case I did for a while because I wanted to collect them all but it's more it's just always just gonna be characters whether it's an industry that to write about or you know a football team or a it's just if there's an interesting character I'm in I don't even almost care what what (laughs) what the story is it's you know, I just like to write. That's what I like to do. I like to get to understand characters and manipulate that, not manipulate them in real life, but
1: like on a stage, you know? and Well, but I mean, for, for modern magazines, I mean, I just feel like people who tend to be written about in magazines, people who tend to be profiled in GQ are people who are being handled.
2: Yeah, I know. Yeah.
1: They're people, I mean, you wrote a piece about Bob Dole recently. I know. How do you take that approach? How do you get to know characters when... Uh, the people that you're trying to figure out are very interested in protecting and projecting a very similar, specific image.
2: I, I just do approach it that way. Whether or not you get the access is another is another problem. If you have enough time to really get to know someone, but I'm just the good thing is I'm like with football players. It's really easy for me to write about. Andy used to send me out. Just go interview a football player because you know nothing about football, and you won't be asking him about the coaches or the scores or any of those things that that you know are sort of in the way of the of the person. Um, same way, like with early on, the first celebrity profile I ever did was Tom Cruise, and um, I wasn't exactly sure who he was. <laughs> who was kn- this? Uh, he was doing Days of Thunder, that movie about race cars. Sure. And it was really helpful that I didn't know who he was, wasn't sure who he was. I mean, I kind of had, I'd heard of him. But so I didn't really go in with, like, I didn't care that he was famous particularly. I even remember when I met him on the race track, this guy walked up, he said, hi, I'm Tom. And I thought, I said, hi, Tom. I'm thinking it's one of the, he was short and I had no idea it was him. I was like, oh, that's Tom. Okay. This (laughs) is my interview. You know what I mean? So. And so my question in that story was just okay you're you're a famous movie star at twenty, whatever he was, very young. What in the world does that do to you? you know who who even are you if if this is what you've been catapulted into um, And that just through a, you can't I mean you can ask that question just not gonna to get you anything, but just through observation and I guess asking it to yourself over and over again, what must it be? And I remember he took me in a race car. Um, you know, around and around Daytona, even though he was just a movie star driving a race car, but he was so convinced he was a race car driver. (laughs) And they kept yelling in the microphone, come back, Tom, come back, come back. And, um, I would go like this, like put my finger up like one more time to (laughs) dare him. Oh man, it made him go faster, (laughs) faster. And they kept calling him back. And I remember going around that circle and the images that would flash. And hearing this come back, Tom, come back in my ear, and the image that flashed was the women's room because it was like a word. And you go around a cycle and go, women, 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 come back, Tom, women, women. And I was like, okay, that's the moment I'm going to capture. Like that's what's flashing. So that t- at that. that
1: time, you you knew what you were going to write. Yeah, I mean, I y- caught that. <laughs> right. I was like, all right, <laughs> this is what this guy sees.
2: Yeah, I'm going to use
1: that. I mean, I feel like that's a weird part of like celebrity profiling is like, uh, it's like a, it's like a game where the reporter is trying to like conjure up those moments or at least the bad ones. I mean, that's how the bad, that's how it reads to me a lot. mm It's like, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, made up event. We're going to go to an amusement park or like, you know, we're going to go ride the A train for a day or something, you know? Um, and it's and it's this cat and mouse game where the reporter's trying to get that person to reveal something about themselves. Is that am, am I am I misreading that? Is that how you not is do you approach those things differently?
2: Oh, I, I I I mean that's kind of your charge almost, and you know somehow you think that's what you don't. I mean you're told by the outside world that that's what's going to make a story be interesting about this character, but no, I. I I'm always, I'm trying to get it. What is it like? It's a point of view issue for me always. Can I get, how can I get inside this guy's head and what's it look like inside this person's head looking out? That's kind of where I'm trying to get, not by tricking a person necessarily, not by tricking a person, but what's going to be the little instant that gets me there? Like Michael Bay, that, that, that movie director, I remember I had to write about him once. Again, I didn't know those movies. It really helps if you don't know a lot. <laughs> I'm in the celebrity. It's funny. and It's the opposite. You know, with was Um, But I just remember driving around in his Ferrari with him. And he kept parking in the handicapped spots everywhere he went. Like, because he just didn't want to walk. And he just, like, had this sort of, I don't know why. I didn't mention it. I'm but,
1: Michael fucking Bay. That's why.
2: Yeah. And I was like, you're parking your Ferrari in the handicapped spot. Really? I didn't say this out loud but to myself I'm like, yeah, that, that that's almost enough. <laughs> <laughs> I got a glimpse. You know, that's all you get is a glimpse in those kinds of stories. It's not it's not you'll hear probably most people tell you, it's just not it's just not the fun part of this work.
1: But going and spending six months in a coal mine, that's the fun part of the work.
2: I would say if you asked any writer which they would rather do, ride a Ferrari or ride in a race car with Tom Cruise, they're going around in circles or go to a coal mine, don't you think? Any writer? I I don't know. Or what would I read? Sure. I know. I mean, for me, it's material. It's almost like I talk to my, my students like this. It's like I always feel like I'm like a potter, like a sculptor or something like that. And when you're reporting, you're going out and you're just like gathering clay in a riverbed. Like you just got to get all different colors and all different textures and you don't even know what you're going to do with it, but you need the clay. You can't make anything unless you get the clay. And then that's a whole stage you're going through. And then you're bringing that back and you got these lumps and you're just like, it's like, it's just like you just went to a store and bought stuff and you're just like, oh, I have all this now. It's like, then you get to play with the clay.
1: So last night I went to this reading of yours in, uh, In or I guess there's an interview sort of, and it was with uh, Jim Nelson, who is your editor at GQ. And you guys were talking about all these stories you'd done. And one of the things that seemed like it it went unmentioned but was apparent both in the book and in that room last night where everyone was cracking up and uh, kind of in love with you, I think, um, was that it would be really hard to do the work that you do without being like supernaturally charming i mean to get coal miners to spend six months with you to get guys on a rig in alaska to let you hang out to get cheerleaders to let you into their world i mean do you have to be do you have to be charming to do the work that you do
2: Okay, first of all, you're making it sound like I know what I'm doing, and I don't. I mean, that this is that whatever, however you go in with a certain persona when you go into one of these things. First of all, I'm really shy, and I think, I mean, truly fundamentally shy. I'll sit in the car, like, in pain that I have to go in there, especially the first time I meet these people. I mean, I just, I don't want to, breaking the ice to me is awful. So I'm genuinely scared. Um, when I go in and genuinely feeling like I know you're, I'm just so sorry I'm here, (laughs) you know, to them, you know, and whatever it is that you're calling charm or something. I'm also just genuinely curious and I do want to know, you know, I'm not making it up. I'm not making up like I want to understand how stuff works. I'm not making it up that you know, something's weird going on here, and I just want can't you just tell me? But I am making some, stu- as I think about it, I do make some stuff up about curiosity as a politeness, maybe. Like, I'm just thinking now back in the landfill, it got really, you know, all that technical information. I don't really understand, you know, all the pipes and what they do, and there's so many pipes. And you want to just... You tune out, mm-hmm. but you have to be polite and make eye contact. Just as a, just as a, a passage to something else. Because people really do want to explain themselves. I, I really do. Th- I think if you're open to, if you give people a chance to explain themselves, they, they want to.
1: I mean, I assume that part of it also is that people, everyone wants to feel important and everyone wants to feel um, appreciated and I, I assume that part of it also is about um, giving people space to talk about how they spend their lives and what mm. they do mm. which maybe they don't have the space to do very often. I, I
2: think a lot of people don't I think that a lot of people especially the kinds of people I write about are not used to you know they don't tell their their families aren't that particularly interested it's sort of routine you know I do this I do this I get up I do this you know all of our lives have a you know real level of Routineness to them um so I guess maybe if someone just stops you mid mid you know stream of your day and said wait stop wait what are you doing you're taking a subway whoa how do you pay for a subway I mean it can be stupid as that but just freezing a moment um and asking about it it slows you down too you know it slows the the person who's being asked down and you go oh wow somebody's interested in what I'm doing here
1: in terms of the people you talk to and you and you spent time with for the book do you do you approach them differently are there different uh Jean Marie's that show up in those places
2: you act because you feel like you have to be cool maybe certain times um you can't help but it's peer pressure you know that's like you're back in high school a lot you want to be in with a cool crowd there's a lot I guess you do act but if you throwing it back on the person always and you really are asking about the person I never bring myself into these conversations very very rarely Um, so it's not like I have to be anybody I'm if I'm doing my job right I'm blank you know, I'm a I'm a sponge. I'm just drinking up what this person's giving to me. So if I'm if I'm you know successful, I probably have reached that. But I just don't think it's that different from like being like a friend with someone. I don't I don't have any awareness of what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out.
1: I don't know what I'm talking about either. I mean, I just I I guess I'm uh. That seems like that seems like the thing that maybe I was looking for is is that your relationship with the people that you're covering it seems to me is quite similar to how I've seen you relate to people when you're not gonna write about them, and I don't know that that's always the case you know I think that uh um there are times where people <clears throat> where reporters sort of box themselves up a little bit and uh I guess that's what I was trying to figure out.
2: Someone recently was writing about that oil rig story I wrote and about the main character in there, his name is Two Dogs. He had the most interesting perspective on that character. He's, because Two Dogs is like the father of this rig, the one everyone counted on, the one everyone could talk to. And I never thought of it like this, but he, this writer wrote um, the one tragedy in Two Dogs' life is that he didn't have a Two Dogs in his life and it seemed like Jean Marie became that for him, which I have to tell you, that was like the hugest compliment I think I've ever gotten. Um, but I do remember that relationship. I formed with that guy where he didn't have anybody. And I, I'm just a writer going in here, you know. I'm not really... What do you do with that kind of intensity of a, of a relationship when you're, then your job is to this evoke it on the page? It's a huge... Not just privileges, I have like responsibility. Because, you know, it's just for a story. And I t- tell them that, you know. Like, I'm asking you to trust me, but at the same time I'm telling you, don't trust me. You know, I'm kind of like a vulture in this relationship. We're not friends. Um,
1: And do you, are you still in touch with a lot of people that you've covered? I mean, do you?
2: Yeah, oh yeah. M- many. Are a wannabe, then sometimes they read it and they can't talk to you afterwards for a little while, because it's so. I think it's really jolting. For, I know it's jolting. To to read about yourself, and often I get this often. Well, they're they're silent, and then grumbly, and then maybe even a couple weeks later. Well, I was talking to my wife about it, and she said it was like really like me, so. I guess, is that really how I am? <laughs> and then we're friends again. Right. It's like, well, I'm sorry. But, yeah, I mean, that is, I, that's at least to me, like, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. All right. Like foot, you know, the yeah. coal miner. Yeah, all right. You got me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, have w- I have one more question, then I'll let you go. But I, I'm interested in how do you manage all the stuff you have in your life? So you You have two daughters. I do you live on a working farm
2: hobby farm
1: hobby farm you're running a writing department and you're publishing features and writing books I mean do you have any like life hacking tips that you can share with me (laughs) How, how do you do all that stuff
2: I'm not oh gosh I might have to
1: do you not sleep are you one of those people that doesn't sleep
2: I don't sleep a whole lot I don't I get up really early. I get up like 5.30. But not because I really want to because my kids go to school so early. Um, And I compartmentalize, you know. If I'm doing, if I'm writing, I am just all writing. If I'm teaching, I'm just all teaching. I don't, I think that's it. You have to sort of, I have to, if I'm out on a story, if I'm in a gun shop, that is all I am, is a clerk in a gun store. You know, it's like a, Maybe putting on different clothes or something. It's just all you are. And you sort of just be that for that period of time, knowing that you're going to shed it to go be someone else.
1: Yeah. Uh, that seems like a pretty good uh, place to end things. Jean-Marie, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. I'm Max Linsky, and we will be back next week. Uh, co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. It's edited by Lauren Kirchner. We'll see you next week.